Property woes grip China, dragging the Aussie dollar down with it. But it's not the only factor putting pressure on the currency. Gold looks like it's heading south for the rest of the Australian winter, yet copper and silver do the opposite and head north. Plus, one bank makes a very bearish call on oil going against the bulls. I'm Shay Russell and welcome to Cocktails and Commodities, the resource podcast where macro analysis meets mining insights. Don't forget to like this podcast and remember, all information is general in nature and not financial advice. Let's get on with it. Gold closed down last week at 1,888 US dollars per ounce, making it the yellow metal's fourth weekly decline. The Federal Reserve Bank's July meeting minutes showed that the central bank is divided on future rate hikes, warning that inflation risks may mean more hikes are necessary. This news caused gold to sink like a stone, with a spot gold yet to find a bottom. Keep your eyes on the 1875 to 1879 level as a potential stopping point, but it's unlikely to be for long. Spot gold looks like it could head into the 1840s without much of a challenge. Falling spot gold prices have seen gold purchases in Western markets drop as well. The US, Australia and Europe tend to buy gold only when the price is screaming higher, and I have it on very good authority that these markets have been slow as of late. With spot gold now below 1900 US dollars per ounce, we should expect more East buyers to come into the market. So far, India is the only country making a notable increase in their gold purchases this week. If Asian markets pick up, it will help the yellow metal find support. In spite of China's economic wobbles, both silver and copper turned higher last week. First, both metals had to test recent low points. In the same week on August 15th, silver fell to a two-month low of 22.27 per ounce and copper dipped to a six-week low of 8,126 US dollars per kilo. Yet shortly after the release of the Fed's minutes, both metals began to march higher. Copper closed the week 1% up and silver climbed 1.7%. Why? Even though there's no sign of stimulus from the Chinese government, nor some sort of financial aid for a property developer that has just defaulted on a US dollar bond payment, both metals have moved higher for similar reasons. Silver's increasing use in solar panels looks like it will provide support for now. And copper lifted on news that Cadelco, one of the world's largest copper producers, saw copper production fall 14% for the first six months of this year. In addition, stockpiles at warehouses across the world for both copper and silver are down. Copper stockpiles are looking particularly vulnerable as combined inventory at the Shanghai Futures Exchange and Chinese bonded warehouse was just 110,000 tonnes, down 53% year on year. Looked at another way, that's equivalent to just three days of copper consumption within China. In short, there's very little room for a surprise disruption in supply on paper. However, it appears most copper within China is trading outside of futures exchanges and directly between counterparties, which tells us that private companies are holding large stockpiles and manufacturers are having no problem accessing the metal. This is possibly one reason why the price isn't storming higher on such limited supply. Keep in mind that September to October is traditionally the peak demand period for copper within China and copper prices may start to retreat towards Christmas. Brent crude closed the week at just shy of 85 US dollars per barrel. 
despite production cuts from OPEC+, falling rig counts in the US and declining inventories globally, oil's seven-week rally may be nearing an end. For starters, oil markets find themselves at the widest backwardation level since April. Backwardation simply means that the spot price is higher than the forward price. In other words, backwardation tells us that the market is demanding more of something right now than it will in the future. This backwardation is curious given just how much supply has been cut from the market. Russia has cut 25 million barrels from the market over August and September, and Saudi Arabia has shed a drastic 90 million barrels from July to September. These supply cuts have led to two energy authorities saying oil prices will remain in the 80s. The US Energy Information Administration says Brent will remain around 86 US dollars per barrel, rising to $88 per barrel by November and December, before easing back to $86 US again over 2024. The International Energy Association has similar oil price forecasts. In addition to this, the EIA says there will be a moderate oil deficit of 100,000 barrels by the end of the year. OPEC takes this one step further and predicts a deficit of more than 1.5 million barrels per day for 2024. Yet production cuts and this supposed looming shortfall isn't pushing crude prices higher. And this is largely because of the slowing economic conditions from the world's largest oil users. Analysts at Citigroup have warned that after the peak oil demand period in August, the price of crude will fall back below 80 US dollars per barrel. In contrast to almost all other reports, Citigroup suggests there will be a small surplus of 200,000 barrels per day, dragging the oil price further down into Christmas. Citibank then add that this surplus will increase to 1.8 million barrels per day over 2024. Furthermore, the bank warns that OPEC members will have to make deeper production cuts to keep the oil price above 70 US dollars per barrel. So what data does Citigroup have to produce such a different forecast to almost everyone else? The Citigroup analysts believe that other agencies have a couple of flaws in their assumptions. One flaw is that most agencies have not included potential new output coming from Iran and Iraq, both of which have oil projects in the work. Plus Citigroup suggests that Venezuela and Nigeria could increase stability in their oil industries and ramp up production, which would surprise the market. Finally, the bank adds that demand growth from emerging markets isn't enough to push crude higher as oil-consuming giants face slowing economic growth. The end result of Citigroup's analysis is that Brent could very well be back at $60 US per barrel by 2024. The only thing that would prevent these price falls from happening, right, Citigroup, are hurricanes that knock out supply. China is back to being in the headlines for all the wrong reasons. First, it was the slowing economic data. Then it was that the CCP had announced they no longer publish youth unemployment figures. Most recently, there is the growing chorus of concern around Chinese property developer Country Garden when it missed two US dollar bond payments. Ratings agency Standard & Poor's says more than 50 Chinese property developers have gone bust in the past two years. But Country Garden seems to have rattled the Australian markets more than the rest. Until recently, Country Garden was China's largest property developer based on revenue. The firm has more than 3,000 projects spread across all of China's provinces 
and at least 1 million homes to still be completed. Unlike Evergrande, however, Country Garden builds lower value projects in second and third tier cities whereas Evergrande operated in major Chinese cities. In addition, Evergrande was already insolvent when the company defaulted and Country Garden still has more assets than liabilities and its biggest debt burdens don't mature until 2025. In short, there's time for Country Garden to restructure. Aside from lowering the one-year medium-term lending facility by 15 basis points to 2.5%, Chinese authorities haven't stepped in to provide any support for the property developer. The Australian dollar has been a casualty of Country Garden missing a payment. Since the news hit the wires on August 8, the Australian dollar has taken an absolute belting. The Australian dollar has now fallen 2.55% against the US dollar in just 10 days, and it is now scraping along at nine-month lows. With the Aussie dollar oscillating either side of 64 US cents, technically speaking, it puts the price in no man's land. As to how low the Aussie dollar falls from here, all depends on how traders suspect further negative news directly relating to the Chinese economy will impact the Australian currency. As a guide, there's historical support for the currency at 64.60, which may mean the biggest falls are over. Though one whiff of bad news and you can't rule out another full cent slide to 63.50. Again, support here would be tepid and in a panic, a dive down to 62.80 could happen before the Aussie dollar's plunge starts to bottom out. Now, exaggerated movements in the Aussie dollar aren't normally something I draw investors' attention to. This sort of volatility is really only relative to traders and hedging firms. The question we need to ask though, is what happens if the Aussie dollar doesn't pick itself up? Prolonged currency weakness could cause a problem the Reserve Bank of Australia didn't see coming. Much of the coverage around Country Garden's payment default has focused on the possibility of another Lehman Brothers moment. That is the point where one company's problem becomes everybody's problem or China entering a lost decade of growth like Japan. But here in Australia, the commentary has really missed the implications of the broader Aussie dollar sell-off. There are several factors that influence the value of the Australian dollar. One is the terms of trade, that is the ratio between the index of import prices and export prices. Another is commodity prices. Then there is interest rate differentials, sentiment and speculation around trading partners. And finally, Australia's credit rating. Australia is one of only nine countries to have a triple A credit rating from all three major ratings agencies. And for now, this is largely irrelevant to the value of the Aussie dollar. When it comes to our term of trade, we are running a trade surplus, which is normally supportive for the Aussie dollar. However, sentiment, commodity prices and interest rates are dragging the Aussie down. With China being our largest trading partner since 2007 and two-way trade between us now exceeding $3 billion in 2022, when China's economy sneezes, Australia catches a cold. Hence why slowing economic data and a property developer against the rope are causing the Aussie dollar to sputter. As for commodities, sure, there's bright spots within individual minerals. Natural gas, copper and wheat, for example, are doing reasonably well. But there's no real collective commodity price boom to catch the Australian dollar as it falls. What we may be facing is a lower for longer Aussie dollar, which becomes problematic for consumers as it risks imported inflation via a weaker currency, a threat the Reserve Bank of Australia hasn't really addressed yet. This is where the interest rate differential comes into play. 
the Federal Reserve Bank has a much higher Fed funds rate compared to what the RBA has set, giving us the largest interest rate differential between the two since April 2001. With the Fed funds rate at 5.25% and the RBA's cash rate at 4.1%, the higher rate in the US attracts capital away from Australia. This outflow of money decreases the demand for Australian dollars and is another factor that pushes the value of the Aussie dollar down. The problem here is Australians have never really faced a sustained long-term weakness in our currency. Since floating in 1983, the Aussie dollar has only spent 6.4% of its time trading between 60 to 65 US cents. The daily average for the Australian dollar compared to the US dollar over the last 40 years is 75 US cents. If our dollar gets stuck in the low 60s or even lower for a significant period, it increases the risks of imported inflation. If the Fed and other major economies continue to lift rates, and the RBA remains frozen in time, the RBA will risk exacerbating inflation locally. This would put pressure on numerous things we import, such as pharmaceutical products, fuel, machinery, computers and technology, any high-tech equipment, and automobile parts, for example. The only way to reduce the impact of imported inflation in Australia is to have our central bank lift rates as the other major central banks lift their rates. Now, sustained weakness in the Aussie dollar might not happen. A bounce back above 65 US cents would be enough to prevent our central bank from worrying about imported inflation risks. And a weak currency wouldn't be bad news across the board. It's just tough for consumers and an RBA attempting to reduce inflation. One of the upsides of a weak currency is that a low Aussie dollar makes our exports very attractive to international buyers as our goods become cheap relative to others. This would all be good news for our exporting mining companies, no doubt. Plus, a weak currency might see a resurgence in local manufacturing. For the last two years, there's been plenty of discussion within Australia around how to wrestle the mineral downstream processing away from China and possibly bring it to our shores. A prolonged period of Aussie dollar weakness would bolster the argument for miners, businesses and governments to invest in further downstream processes that would refine minerals to a high purity before they are exported. In the long run, this would see Australia benefit not just from digging up rocks, but the value add that comes with refining a high purity market product before it's exported. Who knows? Maybe a weak currency is exactly what we need to convince banks and governments alike to invest big time in the rearranging of the current mineral processing supply chain. That's all for today's episode of Cocktails and Commodities. Later this week, we will touch on the one year anniversary of the US's Inflation Reduction Act and what it's achieved and we'll look at the resurgence of uranium. Make sure you're following this podcast so you never miss out on what rocks are making news, which commodities are moving markets, and the company's trying to get it out of the ground. <laughs>